Good morning. It's good to see everyone out. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're going to be starting by reading that text in just a moment, just a couple of verses there. If you are visiting with us, you're our honored guest here. We're so glad that you were able to be here with us, worship God, and study His Word, uh, as I said, with us. I would just say that if, uh, whether you're a visitor or not, we are uh, meeting again this evening at 6 p.m., and we're going to be beginning a series that I think, that I presume we're uh, all excited for, and it is a series where we are just going to preach at least one lesson through every single book of the Bible. And so tonight what we're going to be doing is just beginning at the beginning in Genesis, and we're going to look at um, particularly the book as a whole and the importance of Genesis. So I would just invite you back this evening so that we can go over um, that lesson. And I'm, I'm very excited to share some of the things that I learned uh, this past week in studying for that uh, as we go over that. But again, what we're going to be looking at this morning is over in Acts chapter 26. If I haven't said that already, Acts chapter 26. There's something that Paul says uh, while he is get, making a defense for the gospel. Um, and if you recall... This is his defense before King Agrippa, before Festus, before all of the people that are trying to silence Paul. They do not want him to keep on speaking specifically about the gospel. Now, as he is going through, uh, going through this defense that he's making, specifically in verse 19 of Acts chapter 26, he says to King Agrippa, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, talking about his conversion. But in verse 20, But I kept declaring both to those of, of Damascus first. Uh, well, he, he's, he has, uh, let me just say, he has talked about his conversion, but then he, he continues on by talking about the teaching that he gives to both Jews and the Gentiles. And then in verse 20, But kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, especially in verse 20, there, I think that there's a lot of application that we are supposed to make specifically about repentance. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I'll just say that this, while this is a topical lesson on repentance, based upon what, what Paul says here, this won't answer all the questions that you could possibly ask when it comes to this. Uh, it won't be all the information that you could possibly go through. But I, but I do think that Paul's statement um, and progression here as he makes this statement talking about repentance are at least noteworthy. So I kind of want to go through the, just three points this morning. And the first two points specifically refer to something that he says within uh, this defense as he makes it to uh, the people before him. And the first point that I want to look at is this idea of turning to God. So all throughout what I want to do is just explain a little bit further through several passages throughout the New Testament especially, just what repentance is supposed to look like, expectations of repentance. And one of the first things you realize is that it is a turn, uh, especially if you've... Uh, if you remember any of the lessons that Brother J.R. Bronger has gone through in, in a gospel meeting, he'll typically end his sermons as he's extending the invitation of Christ. He does this little thing with his finger. He says, when you turn, you repent, you turn from your sins. It is a turning. It's a turning away from our sins, and it's specifically a turn towards God. Um, what's interesting is that when it comes to this topic of repentance, this is where the, the gospel message uh, really starts. Over in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 4, or sorry, Matthew chapter 3 beginning. 
Matthew chapter 3. Um, specifically when it's talking about John the Baptist. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that's just how the, the, the beginning of Matthew starts. When you, when you start looking at John the Baptist's life and his ministry, the very first thing that we hear from his mouth is, Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Over in chapter 4, finally, after... Uh, Jesus um, has been tempted by the devil. He successfully gets through that. But in verse 17, it says that after he had gone to Capernaum, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So both John the Baptist and Jesus start this gospel message with this idea of repentance, this idea of turning towards God, turning away from other things. And why is that? Why is it that this is typically where you start, even in Peter's sermon, when he uh, ends that sermon, when the people ask him, when his brother, brothers ask him, what do we do in verse 37? How are we supposed to make things right after putting this Messiah, this Jesus from Nazarene, the Christ, to death? What are we supposed to do? And he says, be, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so even there you find that idea of repentance. It's so important that you never let go of it. Uh, and even to the degree of it, it's what it takes to become a Christian and it's what it takes to maybe maintain that Christian identity, that relationship in Christ. Why is that? Well, because it's, it's a change of heart. And before you can enter into this kingdom, which was at hand as they preached about, before you can become a citizen of that kingdom specifically, you must have a, that radical change of heart. You can't bring anything into this kingdom. No, rather, it's you leave everything behind, and what the king says, that's what you take on. That's what you put on yourself. That's what you clothe yourself with. And you only act how he says. And, and, and so we take his word. At, 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 everywhere we find it, we go by his will alone, and, at, and, and everything he says, we're going to follow it to the letter as best as we can. That's what is required to become that citizen. That we can't bring maybe our past citizenship and in terms of a spiritual sense, the worldliness. You can't bring those worldly habits. You can't bring the worldly mindsets into this spiritual relationship with God. It's acknowledging that no matter where we are, we must change course. No matter if, if we're you know, miles away from the right path or maybe we're just a few steps. No matter what, if you're not on the righteous path, if you're not on the path to heaven to, the, 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 after walking after the footsteps of Christ, then you are far, you're way too far from it. And you need to, you need to uh, change course, correct course. Now, so I think it's interesting that that's where the gospel tends to begin whenever uh, you're talking, whenever you see uh, people converted. There is that sense that there must be a change within their own lives and a radical one at that. But as you continue through the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, what you find is that it tends to be the religious. And what I mean by that is those who already have a pretty deep knowledge of God who tend to have the most difficulty with this message of repentance in the New Testament. And I think ultimately it's because they, they're uh, a personal blindness. They don't know how far they really are from God or how far they've actually strayed from God because they have so uh, maybe attentively... Uh, followed into you know, the path of the Pharisees, and they have started to believe that lie. They've started to believe that own self-righteous kind of uh, idea or that attitude. Over in John chapter 8, especially, I think is um, very telling when it comes to the attitude of the Jews, specifically in the first century. The Jews, and this is what Paul would say, I believe, in Romans. This is what, one of the main arguments I think he makes in the first three chap chapters. 
He basically says, listen, of course the Gentiles are guilty. We can all agree on that. Because they've sinned, They're, they will be held guilty for their wrongdoings. But you will too, and in a, to a degree more so. Because you were given the oracles of God. You were entrusted with the oracles of God. And yet, look how you turned out. You did not obey him fully. Over in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to many Jews. We don't have enough time to go through the entire passage. But uh, still, it's somewhat of a lengthy read because I want to get the gist of what he's saying. In verse 34, after these people that he's talking to, uh, says, listen, we've, we've never been enslaved. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved. First of all, just... I don't know how they can say that because in their history, since Abraham, you have one of the most beautiful moments uh, of deliverance from Egypt. And so I just don't understand that. So already there's a disconnect as they're talking. But Jesus answered them and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Now let's just stop there for just a moment. You see what he's saying so far is, yes, sure, sure, sure. You're descendants of Abraham. You are children. But can you really say that Abraham is your father when you clearly are are uh, not only doing away with and, and neglecting what he would have loved, but you're persecuting it, and you hate it, and you wish for, to silence it. Because Abraham would have loved this. In verse 40, he says, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. That's the key. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. So all the while, what is he saying? Yes, you can say, you can have this label of sons of Abraham. And yet, you look nothing like him. You know who you look more like? The devil. The one that wanted Abraham dead. The one that wanted to lead Abraham astray. That's the deeds that you follow after. His deeds. And they didn't want to acknowledge it. And all the while, you can read the entire passage, but all the while, they just refuse to, to look into the mirror and see just how true Jesus' words are. I'm not willing to see that. And you know what? I'm a son of Abraham, so I don't even care what you have to say. When we shut off like that, oh, that, that's one of the biggest hindrances for those who are maybe already spiritual sons of Abraham today. And they say, listen, I have been baptized into Christ, I've been clothed in Christ, and that means that, you know, I'm fine. And no matter what you say, that's what I'm going to believe. I don't care what you say. And we get into this false sense of security that we can just do whatever we want. We can walk however we want, even if it's contrary to the words of Christ himself. And here he is all the while saying, can you really say that you're my disciple? And so we have to be careful because I, I think that that temptation 
uh, is ever before us. That, idea, that false sense of security that, that, we, that we can do whatever we want. And yet God's not going to care at all about what we're doing. It's so contrary to the gospel. And so contrary to this idea of repentance. Over in Matthew chapter 11, what we find is that it is blind and, and really selfish fealty or loyalty to something or you know, whatever our idol is that ignores the bigger truths, that ignores the, the conclusive evidences. Over in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, as he's right after um, doing many miracles, after his disciples have done many miracles in these places, these places, uh, there were uh, places that just did not receive them. They rejected the gospel message. And what does he say? It says he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in, uh, in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And we can look back to the Old Testament and we see some of the uh, interactions between the sons of God, Israel, his, his chosen people, and Tyre and Sidon. But if you don't have that, maybe you can't remember that, uh, those nations as much. You definitely remember what he says next. And for you, Capernaum, Will not be, uh, er, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable, tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And what is he saying? Miracles, what are their purpose? It is a sign from God. It is proclaiming deity. It is showing that Jesus, he truly is who he says he is. He's the son of the living God. And he has the power to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive sins. He's not just doing these things on his own initiative. He's not just saying things. This is the Christ that they've been waiting for. And so they perform these miracles that are pointing ultimately to Jesus, pointing, pointing people ultimately to God, and they are looking those in the face and they are saying, we won't have it. We won't repent. And look at, look at how severe the penalty is. It will be worse for you than it was for Sodom because guess what? Something better has come to you. And, and, and I just have to say, it's because I think those people did not turn, they did not want to repent because they were blinded by their own fealty, uh, and by that I mean allegiance or loyalty, to something else that wasn't God. It may have looked like God. It may not have been an idol that was wood and stone. It may have looked something comparable to him, but it wasn't him. Because if God really was their master, their Lord, oh, they would have dropped, at the drop of a hat, they would have done exactly what Jesus was, was calling for. But they didn't want to. And so with that being said, I think that it is those who have more information of God, who have the more knowledge of God, that will be held more responsible. As we were just saying a moment ago in Romans, this is exactly what Paul says. The reason that you are going to be, the reason that you are going to be held more responsible than even the Gentiles, that you are more guilty, is because you had more opportunity. You were entrusted with the oracles, the words from God himself. And yet you wasted it. Over in Luke chapter 12, uh, in, beginning in verse 47, this is in the middle of a parable that Jesus is giving about stewards, servants of the master who uh, aren't really doing what they're supposed to be. They're unprepared. They're not ready for the master to return. And at the end of this, it says in verse 47, that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So you see how important that is? Especially for if you're sitting in this building today, whether you're a Christian or not, guess what? 
it, as long as I'm reading the words directly from the page and I'm not changing them, and as long as I'm not saying things that are directly in contradiction to what God has given to us, you're hearing the gospel message. And so right now, you're more privileged than everyone else that's you know, not currently worshiping God today, not currently uh, reading through his words. And so with that, are you going to waste that? Are you going to waste that privilege to repent, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're not right with God right now? Or are you going to take that opportunity and do exactly what God wants you to do? And you can put a bookmark there because we'll come back to that in just a moment. But, but again, in Matthew chapter 12, just very quickly, uh, making the same point, uh, Jesus says, uh, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given t- to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because because she came from the ends of the earth just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You remember how many words Jonah's sermon was? If I'm not not mistaken, I believe it's just eight words. (laughs) And it wasn't seasoned with much grace. And yet, Nineveh, they repented. Eight words is all it took. And that entire uh, kingdom... They repented and God relented of the judgment that was going to come upon them. And they will stand in judgment against these people. Why? Because something, a prophet greater than Jonah is here. And one that is more compassionate and gracious and loving than Jonah is here. And not only that, but he's giving a greater message. Because now, you don't just have the promise of a coming uh, atonement and forgiveness. Now, it is here. In their face. And yet, they still do not want to take it. And so, people... uh, they're held more responsible because they're rejecting those big truths which were conclusive enough from the very beginning as we were talking about with the miracles. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, we know that very well. But we also find here that it's neither will those who just have a special knowledge of God, they won't receive special treatment just because they have that knowledge. It's if you have that knowledge and you're utilizing it. And so that's also important to know. Either way, though, whether you have that knowledge as much knowledge as the next person, or you don't have as much knowledge. Those who act like unbelievers will be punished regardless. Back in Luke chapter 12, you see in verse 46 that it's not like he says, it's only this person that will be punished. He says, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That is a more severe punishment. But in verse 48 he says, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. He's not saying that, guess what, this person who still didn't do their job, they're not going to be punished. He says, no, everyone will receive their due. Everyone will receive the penalty that they have worked for. So the question is, have we done what, we, uh, what God expects of us? No matter how far away we are, he expects us to repent and turn towards him. Now, beyond that, not only are we supposed to turn towards God, but we are supposed to repent with deeds, with appropriate deeds, with deeds that... Um, correspond with repentance. And this is really just going to be a point that I want to maybe try and correct some, I think, misconceptions of what repentance looks like. First of all, mere regret is not repentance. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, what you find here is a pretty good definition of what real repentance looks like. It's not just someone saying, oh, well, messed up, feel bad. All right, let's just move on. 
a lot of times that's how we like to address problems. We like to address the problems specifically that were caused by us that way. But look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians in uh, uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. I'm in chapter 8, and so that was starting to freak me out because I thought I had no idea where I was. But chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, but only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what eagerness or, or earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So what does godly sorrow do? It, it does many things. First of all, it, it does not lead to the same conclusion that, God, that uh, worldly sorrow does. But it is clearly not, it's not someone just saying, well, I feel bad about that, now let's just move on. No, it requires the appropriate deeds uh, that correspond with that. And ultimately, when someone acts like that, it shows that they really don't have that much remorse. That's not a true godly sorrow. Um, but, but you look in John chapter 8. I think this point is made even more. John chapter 8, the people, are, some men bring... Um, so some men bring an adulterous woman to Jesus and they are trying to get Jesus to convict her and they're trying to use uh, whatever Jesus says against him. And so he uh, basically just asks the question, the one who has not sinned, he may cast the first stone. And then it starts with the oldest, goes all the way down, everyone leaves and it's just him and the woman. And it says, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Now, since you feel bad, don't worry about it. Hopefully you won't do it again. Is that what he says? Does he say, I do not condemn you either? Because you know what? You might have shed a, a tear or two. You haven't really been arrogant this whole time, so we're just going to let it slide. No. He says, go from now on, sin no more. And so just because someone may say, well, I really do have true remorse for this. I regret this. That's not, that doesn't mean that everything's just okay. There needs to be appropriate actions that correspond with that regret. You need to, you need to be able to see those things. And, well, and, you know, obviously worldly sorrow, it never produces anything wholesome. It never produces anything really satisfying. Because when people react, uh, basically, like what we just described, well, it, it, I know I did wrong, but it's fine. That never leads to a resolution. That never actually solves the problem emotionally or uh, physically when you're in that kind of situation. You, you just think about the differences between Peter's uh, response to his regret and Judas's. And this is, I think, a very good example of the differences between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Because what happens? Judas, in Matthew chapter 27, and verses 3 through 4, he acknowledges, he says out loud, verbally, I have done wrong. I should not have done this. And he truly was affected. He was pricked to the heart. But how does he deal with it in comparison to Peter, who also was pricked to the heart and wept when he locked eyes with Jesus and remembered what he had said and lied about? Well, ultimately, Peter, he weeps. And he has that sorrow, but the godly sorrow that produces earnestness. The godly sorrow that produces righteous indignation that leads 
to, to uh, further righteousness that leads to zeal. Judas did not have godly sorrow, but worldly sorrow. Because where does worldly sorrow lead you to? Further death. And he goes and he hangs himself. And he does not die in the Lord. And so we need to be so careful that when we talk about repentance, when we talk about when it just comes to the regret that we need to have when faced with the gospel, that we are not right with God, that we do not follow in the same way that the rest of the world doesn't say, well, I have done wrong, but you know what? Jesus has already sacrificed himself, so everything's good. No, you've got to listen more. And you better pay a little bit more attention to what Jesus has actually said. Yes, he's sacrificed himself for you, but you can still waste it. And you can still trample on the blood of Christ in doing so. So be careful that we don't fall into that same temptation. Beyond that, real repentance, as we've just been saying, requires, I would say, uh, uh, fruit bearing. It requires actions that correspond with that kind of regret. Over in, first of all, over in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, this is when John the Baptist is talking to uh, the Pharisees, those who really aren't that honest, and they come up to, to John the Baptist, and they uh, assumedly are, are presumably are going to try to be baptized by him. But in verse 7, it says that he began saying to the crowds who were going to be out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And uh, it's kind of interesting that you look at that hard, um, very, very firm substance. And yet, I think maybe one of the things he's saying is you are more hard-hearted than these physical stones. And God can make more faithful, more obedient children out of them than you. That's how stiff-necked you are. And that is how rebellious and that is how stubborn you have been. The entire time. But look at what he says about that repentance. You need to uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Over in Revelation chapter 2, you see just the same kind of things. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, I believe this is uh, when he's talking to the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 4, but I have this against you. They had done some things right, but he says this, you've done wrong, that you have left your first love. But in verse 5, he says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and, and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. There's a condition there. He says, this will happen. I promise you it will. But it doesn't have to. And what will it take? Repentance. And what does he say? You've got to do something. You have to be active. It's not passive. It never has been. That's one of the reasons why repentance is so hard. I think it's one of the hardest uh, uh, steps to get to the salvation of Jesus. Is because you have to acknowledge everything that I've done, I'm going to have to be willing to do away with it just to follow him. And a lot of people just can't stand that. You go further down in Revelation chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 19. Again, very similar language, but he says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Verse 20, but I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. The word deed is an action. It's something that you do. And so not only... When you talk about repentance, are you talking about things that you have to start doing, but it's also things that you have to stop doing? And just going back into Luke chapter uh, 3, if you're still there, just reading a little bit further on in the text, 
This is exactly what John says to some of the people that come up to him, asking him, what, what do we need to do? In verse 10 of Luke chapter 3, it says that they, the crowds were questioning him, saying, what shall we do? In verse 11, he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors uh, also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been, uh, been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. So all throughout what you find is that John, even at the beginning of this ministry, he is saying that you need to stop some things, but you also need to start some things. Just, just the notion, and there's a few other things that he says, but just the notion of you need to be content with your current wages. <laughs> Let me tell you, especially in our current culture today, there's a lot of people, and even Christians, that would just you know, curse the heavens because I'm not being treated fairly. I'm not being paid fairly. And you know what? In, in a lot of cases I've seen at times, yeah, maybe so. But there is still that commandment that we need to be content with what God has blessed us with. And that is hard enough. Yet, repentance requires that we do more than just starting something. Starting good habits, but getting rid of the bad ones. And so, uh, it... it there, there needs to be a balance of the two ultimately. Repentance is not just action alone, nor remorse alone, but a balance of the two. Back in Acts chapter 26, just very quickly, I just, I love the way Paul says this. And so I know we read this at the beginning. I just want to reread it. Acts chapter 26 in verse 20. Acts chapter 26 in verse 20. He says, he kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And so both of these things, the emotion, the proper emotions are there, there and the actions are there. And one without the other, it's incomplete. It's kind of like what we talk about with baptism and repentance. You can't, how, can someone be baptized without, and, and be saved without repenting? Can someone be baptized without having faith in God and be saved? Well, no, we couldn't say that. Just because you baptize someone, that doesn't mean that they're uh, saved if they haven't done all of the other things that God has said that he wants them to do. And that is repent of the things that they're not supposed to be a part of anymore. And that is to have an allegiance, give an allegiance to him and give a loyalty to him. Just because someone is baptized... If they don't acknowledge that they need it for salvation, we'd, be, we'd feel pretty uh, hesitant about their security in Christ because they're not willing to say, I needed his sacrifice. You know, just another idea. You, if you had a cheating spouse and, and they came up and they said, I, I just feel so bad about this or I know it's wrong. And then they continue to do the same thing. <laughs> Is that repentance? Obviously not. What are you even trying to say? foolishness, absurdity. And yet, I think that's how we look sometimes with God. Because we're not willing to do... We say, we say all the right things, but then we don't do the things that, that correspond with those, uh, those... Maybe that false sense of, of remorse. And so maybe that's just as foolish, or we look just as foolish to God as sometimes we see those situations look to us. Well, finally... There's been a lot of things said this morning about repentance that may be a little bit hard. And while they may be hard, maybe a striking invitation, it's also a very hopeful one. And I hope that this, uh, I hope that you found that intermingled throughout all of the things that we've said this morning. Repentance, just being a choice, reveals the fact 
that we can indeed change even bad behavior, bad habits. There's a lot of people, even within the religious world, especially in the religious world, that would say, well, you can't do it. There is no choice. And you're just going to have to hope that God will, 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 you know, basically keep your hand from going forward and taking this action. No, it is, you, gotta, you have to make the choice. You have to say, I'm going to stop doing this. Not just because I'm so good, not just because I am just so you know, righteous like the Pharisees might have been, but because this is what God requires of me. This is what Jesus wants from me. And I want to make him proud. And I want to fully please him in the best way that I can. And so, but it should be so joyous when we find out, especially the person who maybe is trapped, the Christian who is trapped in the sin of pornography. Maybe no one else knows. And you think that you just cannot escape this addictive and terrible sin that you know is killing you. What God says is, I promise you, you can. Ultimately, it comes down to, do you really want to? But I promise you that I can deliver you from that. Are you willing to follow me? And you could just go down the list of all the things that can trap even Christians, but from the, non, from the unbeliever to the converted, to those that are already disciples of Christ. It is going to be hard because it's not just a small change, particularly when you become a Christian. It is a radical one. And that's why I think Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, uses that terminology. You have to be born again. And if he says that to Jesus' words, a teacher of Israel, man, what does that mean for me? If even Nicodemus had to be born again, surely I do too. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> if Nicodemus, you know what, sometimes I think we look at repentance and we think, well, if somebody just came in and they just had tattoos all over their arms and all over their bodies and all over their eyes, and, and, and they just they decide that they want to become a Christian, you can't actually tattoo your eyes. Extremely terrifying, but, but you can do that. But we look at that person and we imagine that as repentance. Somebody coming down the aisle saying, I want to give all, everything that I've done up and I just want to make things right. That's generally the example that we give ourselves in our mind, that we formulate. But guess what? Repentance, it can look like that in extreme cases. But it can also be just as radical for the person who is dressed up in a nice suit and has, and has a nice sense of fashion. I mean, I don't, but Paige usually picks out these things for me. So... But they can, look, they can check all the boxes in a physical way, and they look just right. And yet just as much of a radical change is needed in their lives. Because guess what? You're going from a carnal mindset to a spiritual one, and that is a big jump. And so are you willing to, to, to make those changes? Christ says, you can. You absolutely can. And so as, we were, as we're talking about this joyfulness, of uh, that, that idea over in Luke chapter 15, this is a beautiful thought in Luke chapter 15 when it comes to repentance. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. There should be much joy in this. In verse 7 beginning, it says, uh, in one of the first parables, after Jesus has given this parable of the lost sheep, it's found. He says, I tell you that in the same way that that man would rejoice over the lost sheep, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he goes on to his second parable, talking about the woman who lost the coin. And she does everything to find that coin. She finds it and she puts on a party just because she's found it. And then in verse 10, he says, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's a beautiful re a rejoicing that you see with these two parables. And guess what? It's even greater in heaven when one person decides that they want to come back to Christ. Or that they want to come back to a relationship with God. My question is, 
do you rejoice in that same way? Or do you end up being the older brother, like the Pharisees, who are so upset that God would accept these, these terrible, wicked, disgusting people? Whether it's myself, or it's a brother in Christ, or it's someone who comes off, off the street who was, not, who was never a believer, but decides they want to give themselves to God, we need to rejoice the same way. Over in Acts chapter 11, just look how they responded. When, when it was said that, that God had, went, that the Holy Spirit had come down upon even the Gentiles, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And what were they doing? They were glorifying God for it. They praised God for it. A lot of the Jews in the first century, they would have been like, what are you talking about? These people? Absolutely not. I refuse. Guess what? You're just like the older brother that Jesus was preaching against in Luke chapter 15, saying, you've got to change. And so again, whether it comes down to me or someone else, no matter what it is, that repentance should be a joyful thing. But, and we should, when that happens, when people do come in, more of an application, really, in this last point, when people do repent, we need to forgive and we need to rejoice just like uh, the, the good side of those parables in Luke chapter 15. And why do we need to respond like this? Why do we need to forgive like this? Because ultimately, that's exactly what God has done with us. In Luke chapter 17, in verse 3, Jesus says, Be on your guard if your brother sins. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And I think in a parallel account, it, it seems to be that Peter, he kind of has some issues with that. He's like, how many times do we really have to repent? And Jesus says, hey, if they're coming sincerely, you accept them in. And sometimes we have a hard time with that. I, I, especially lately, there's been some situations where I've, I've just had some problems with much bitterness and much anger. And ultimately, I've caught myself. I, I've had to catch myself because I look at that situation and I think, one day, one day, Justice will be done. And they will receive everything that they have divvied out to everyone else. And you know what? It's going to be deserved. And you know what? I'm just, I have done everything that I can. I've, 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 I've been as righteous as I possibly could be. And I look at that person and I just say, but they have not. And so you know what? I feel very safe where I am right now. And then I, I literally caught myself because as soon as that, that thought went through my head, as soon as that thought went through my head, I immediately, I don't know why, but I immediately just thought, just, I imagined what the cross would look like. And I imagined just coming before Jesus while he's up on the cross. The one that said while on the cross, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. And I, and I just wondered, how could I come to him while he's hanging from the cross, not just for that person that I'm so angry at, but for me, and say, but look at what they've done. What would Jesus respond with? Look at what you've done. So we need to respond in the same way that Christ would have us to forgive them for they do not know what to do and rejoice in the exact same ways. And if you're a Christian, if you're someone who already has that relationship and you think, well, this is one issue that I think a lot of Christians have is, well, you know, I just, I've, I've been trapped in this sin and I know that I need to do right and I just feel so bad. I don't feel like I can go to God right now because I've just done something so terrible. Guess what? This is the best time to go to God because you understand you've done wrong. And this is a moment where you can full, come to God and experience that, that mercy even more. Because now we have an advocate in heaven, as, as John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 
If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. If you're a Christian and you feel like you can't go to God because you, you've done something to take yourself out of a relationship with him, guess what? What the Bible says is you need to repent pronto, ASAP. And so what are you waiting for? What a beautiful message that we have, no matter who you are, from unbeliever to believer, to understand that Christ says, I will take you. As long, right now, if you are willing to do what I say. So the question is, are you willing to do what he says? Are you willing to take him up on the offer where he says, I promise you, you can change? It may be that there are people here tonight who think, I, I really do want to change. I just simply don't know how. Let me tell you, there are many people here who would love to talk to you about that. You can come to me, you can come to one of the brethren. If you're a Christian and you feel like you need help just with maybe a study or you need help with, in terms of accountability with a brother or sister here, let that need be made known. If you're not a Christian and you are also someone who says, I, I just don't know how to change, let us help you. We would love nothing more. We would rejoice with you if you would allow us to help you in that. So if you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, let your need be made known and come forward as we stand and as we sing.